Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Nick Tobier here <laughs> in the studio. Happy Nick Tobier <laughs> in person. <laughs> So cool. <laughs> it's so good to it's so good to meet you. you I, too. I feel like this this's been a long time coming, Nick. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Um so uh we've got Nick's latest book um out with um May's books from Michigan Publishing, Looping Detroit, a People Mover Travelogue, here on the table with us. And we have Nick's uh, other other beautiful books as well here, Utopia Toolbox, uh Collected Lots. Um and we're going to be talking a lot about your projects out in the world. Great. Um, yeah. But first, I just want to thank folks um, for last week for fundraiser. Um, thanks to everybody who called in um, to pledge during fundraiser last week. Um, and uh, Living Writers will be sending you each a surprise book in the post. Um, so thanks to Manos. Um, Ellen and Gina, Lewis, Harry Fried, uh, my mom, <laughs> Eve. Well, not Harry Fried isn't my mom. Harry, you know who you are. Mom, you know who you are. <laughs> Eve Silberman, Tracy Lazarus, The Liz, um, and Rama Noto Widigdu. And also Jim Schuler, um, who will be getting a, uh, an 826 Michigan book. Um, we had such a, a great show uh, with very special guests. Um, you are also very special, Nick. <laughs> um, but last week it was 826 Michigan, and um, the young writers, Josiah, Rashid, Liliana, um, Luella, their, their parents, Elle and Luke, and then also um, Megan and Amanda from 826 Michigan were here. Um, if you missed it, definitely check out the Living Writers Free iTunes podcast from last week, February 15th, to hear these young writers read their work and to hear their ideas ideas and advice about process and being a writer um, because it's kind of amazing. <laughs> um, and one other um, word of thanks, many thanks to the writers who donated copies of their books. Um, Benjamin Payloff, Josh Kramer, Jonathan Safran Four, um, they donated signed copies of their books for the fundraiser. Um, Nick Butler and Katie Kitamura, their publishers, sent some books to us. Um, and 826 Michigan um, donated books from the young writers. And Nick Tobier is here, and he has books to donate. Um, Looping Detroit, a people mover travelogue. So very grateful. And big thanks to everybody out there uh, listening. And thanks for supporting WCBN and, and Living Writers, too. It, it means a lot. Um, now, without further ado, and so I give Nick a chance to talk soon. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll read your bio um, out of out of the back of Utopian Toolbox, um, point one, yeah, for working on the future, an incitement to radical creativity. I can't wait to talk about this. Nick Tobier is a New Yorker who has transferred much of his affection and sense of street-level exploration to Detroit. Nick studied sculpture and landscape architecture, worked at Storefront for Art and Architecture in New York City for five years on projects and later as a designer, first with the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, Bronx Division, and Landwork Studio, Boston. Nick's focus as an artist and designer is with the social lives of public places, both in built structures and events. He has designed and or activated bus stops, farms, kitchens, boulevards, and has worked within and without uh, and without municipal structures in Detroit, Tokyo, Toronto, San Francisco. His work has been seen at the Queens Museum, New York, the 
Edinburgh Fridge Festival. Kunsthalle Nikolaja. Copenhagen? Was something that like close? Nikolai. Yeah, I Nikolai? think something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive me, Copenhagen. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners in Europe. Um, the Tirana Biennial, Biennial and the Chicago Cultural Center. Thank goodness for the simple ones there at the end. <laughs> Current and recent projects include Marvelous Guests, initiated with Julianne Stegel, a series of site-specific urban interventions, Brightmore Bikes and Trailers, a hands-on workshop for designing, building, and distributing utility bicycles, tricycles, and trailers in Detroit. Nick is an associate professor at the Stamp School of Art and Design and the Center for Entrepreneurship in the College of Engineering at the University of Michigan. You can check out more um, and take a look at everydayplaces.com. Um, Nick, thanks so much. Oh, thanks for, being for inviting on the me. Program it's, it's so today. Fun. I love listening, so it's so great to be here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, because you're, um, you're, you've, you've lived in Ann Arbor for some years now. You've been a New Yorker years. transplant for yeah, a yeah. while. Yeah. What's it like to pass the decade mark and be here? Did you I, ever expect to be here that? Like, uh, we never set a time that we would leave by. You know, I watched people when we had arrived who'd say, "I'm only going to be here for four years," and then I, you know. Ten years later, I think, ah, I'm glad I never said anything like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, I still have a 917 area code on my phone, which sort of helps remem- remind me of where I'm from. Yeah. But really, I think for most of my time here, my work in and with parts of Detroit has made it so amazing that I think of the incredible opportunity of being close to one of the most complex and interesting cities I can think of is, you know, really the joy of it. And the city of Ann Arbor is, you know, like a lovely little place to live, but it is easy in certain, in many ways, you know, and uh, easy goes, has two edges to that. You know, one is really nice mm-hmm. and the other is r- really easy. You know, I think so. And, um, as an artist and as a maker, does it feel like um, does it feel like you need to be careful not to lose the edges? Yeah, yeah. I think I, you know, I remember I'm very superstitious in a very particular way. So I read my horoscope every week. Do you? Yes. What's your sign? Libra. Libra. So what do, what read, does it mean to you? What does the <laughs> the balance mean to me? I, oh, is that, I mean, is I just, that where, okay. I, I just read the this one guy, Rob Bresney, who writes Free Will Astrology. Oh. And he's usually in most of the alternative papers. Right, like a stranger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they're very uh, mystical. (laughs) But I remember there was one that said, uh, be wary of suburban-like complacency. And I thought that was interesting. You know, I think some of the things that um, a quiet place like Ann Arbor enables, one, is some contemplative time if you take it. Mm. You know, if you take it. But I know so many of, you know, our friends and colleagues and neighbors are busy here. So you lose some of the you know, what's special about Ann Arbor, which is that it's less hurried pace. Right. So we were just, my family just got back from Bangalore, India, which was the opposite in so many ways of Ann Arbor in terms of street level activity and life and sort of, uh, you know, everything is open all the time and people are out on the street and it's active and colorful and complicated and it smells great and uh, clothes and fabrics are really colorful it seems so boring to come back, you know, so visually uncompelling. But that contrast, I think, is also really important, you know, for me as an artist and for our children to recognize that there's more than one way that you can lead life. And it's a privilege to be able to go 
visit other places and learn from other people and recognize that you make choices in life about how you want to live it, and the place is one of those choices and how you interact with it. And place is so, so and public space public is space. so yeah. so vital to all your work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. seems like how how did how did that um, I guess connection or interest or compulsion for you like the like to be connected to place right. or to be um, questioning it. That's or... really interesting. Yeah, I think of well, I grew up as a child in New York in a neighborhood that. When I was growing up, people used to say, oh, my God, you don't go outside, do you? That's, you know, you don't go out without a tank. And it's changed. Wait, what neighborhood it's the, is It's this? the Upper West Side. So it's now a neighborhood that I could not afford to live in. But at the time I was growing up, there were, you know, most of the my block had, you know, f- very few standing buildings with vacant lots between it. And um, I understood the, you know, the streets that surrounded me and um, my life in public to be really vulnerable, you know, that I was sort of powerless, that the environment around me was hostile and it was difficult to navigate. And I really wanted to get out of there. And I went to a small liberal arts college, which was definitely the opposite. Swarthmore? Swarthmore, which I I really enjoyed, but it was really quiet. And I found myself going into Philadelphia a lot, sort of looking for some of the things that I thought I was fleeing. And one of the things that I, you know, recognize in my choices to practice art the way that I do, and I studied landscape architecture because I was really interested in streets and public space, is that there are opportunity, There are some of us who have opportunities to choose the way that we want to live our lives and how we want to interact with public, and there's a lot of power in that. And I didn't have that as a child growing up, and I have it now, and I'm really attentive to that that's a, a privilege that I have. And so when I work with young people or communities, in other parts of the world or another, you know, whether it's regional or national or international, I recognize that it's a choice that I've been able to make. And I'm really careful to understand that not everybody has that choice, but some of the things that I'm attentive to are how I can use that um, access to privilege as a way to turn it inside out for opportunities for other people. And that's, you know, how I see, you know, if there's value to my work besides my my own enjoyment of a public space. It may be in recognizing that not everybody has the same access to that space. It seems so valuable to have that kind of awareness in a way. So do you think that um, being aware of that, do you feel like that helps you not romanticize a place or um, idealize it in a certain way. That's really interesting. Yeah, because often you might be leaving the place, right, and going back to what your chosen place. That's of, right. Your home yeah. or your yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I rom- I I'm both aware of it and I romanticize places at the same time. You know, so there's something, um, f- uh, you know, f- forever nostalgic in the present tense. You know, so I recognize that I don't know. I think at a certain point, I remember sort of as a sort of high school student wandering around Manhattan's Chinatown and enjoying it for its 19th century streetscape. Mm. But part of what I enjoyed about it was how precarious it seemed. You know that you know right at the edges were gleaming skyscrapers going up. You know, so that that tension between something that is f- you know, fragile versus something that might be static, I think, is something that I'm aware of, you know, both in terms of the way cities are built and in terms of, you know, romanticizing. I know that I can, you know, from my small experience of being in India, talk about how wonderful street life is. 
But if you live on the street, it might not be so wonderful. Yeah. So that's something that I'm also alert to is that the, my experience is in some ways um, enabled by access to privilege that comes from race and gender. You know, I recognize that I could wander around the streets in a way that my wife couldn't, the same way by myself. And I didn't, I felt somewhat invincible, which I think is something that I learned growing up in New York was not something to be taken lightly. You know, that I could walk down a a street in my neighborhood, but I couldn't walk down the same street in another neighborhood, you know, because I didn't. Because you have to know. You have to to know what certain codes are and you have to you know, not enter a and place like you own it. as well. I think there's a lot in that about, you know, entering as a well place. As well as safety, and, it's respect. Respect, yeah. Yeah, that it's not your, to not show up like you own it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that probably, yeah, that's a good thing to think about yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, when you said uh, fragile and static as well, when you were thinking, uh, like talking about uh, the area, the edges of, yeah. for example, Chinatown in New York during a certain time, yeah. um, I feel like it connects also... Um, I just feel like thinking about Detroit, probably because your book, Looping Detroit, a yeah. people mover uh, travelogue is here on the table with us. Yeah. But what, what's what been happening with Detroit Yeah. In, in the last, I guess, at least, well, for for a long time, for a, actually. For a long time. Um, yeah. But in the more recent history, so yeah. much as well. Right, which is fragile in a lot of ways. That a lot of things that I think, you know, I remember thinking in, 2007 that I couldn't imagine gentrification in Detroit and then starting you know 2008 or so things came out like waves that I you know that the displacement of people and places and identities is happening so quickly and the you know the voices of resistance will get steamrolled by gentrification capitalism whatever you want however you want to describe it and I think that's uh, you know I can um in some sense, be somewhat of a witness to it. But I also, again, I recognize that I have a privilege in being able to um, not have the the place in which all of my identity disappear before my eyes. Yeah. Let's take a short break. Okay. Um, when we come back, uh, we'll be talking about Nick Tobier's book, Looping Detroit, a people mover travelogue. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. Um, and we've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on Living Writers, Nick Tobier is here in the studio. Thanks for picking the songs today, Nick. Oh, it's my pleasure. To, it's so great to hear them. <laughs> <laughs> you you done good. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> um, this song, why, tell us, a, like, what's some connection? What's the story on this one, this Nick? Is, you know, it's Gene Knight. I'm not sure where, where it was recorded, but in um, summer of 2006, I started a project which I think was sort of ill-informed, but I don't know. It was it was uh, <laughs> already I'm interested. Yeah. We, there was an opportunity. The, the U of M's Detroit Center had just opened, and there was a gallery that existed for a while, uh, sort of right at the corner. But you had to buzz to get in, so you couldn't enter the build. You could come through the secure parking, or you could buzz to get in. So it sort of said effectively, "This place isn't for you if you're walking by." Right, and which is a weird. So weird, yeah, yeah. No, gallery sh- on a sidewalk. I know, level. and I think that was a, a um, restriction based in the lease or something like that. You know, oh. um, so the, you know we had a group of artists from here and from Detroit who had been invited to do projects to sort of inaugurate the space. And I noticed from the windows of the gallery that there was a bus stop, but the bus stop was just like a metal stick with a sign. You know, and mm-hmm. so people would wait for the bus in the in the rain and the sun, and they wait for like an hour. It's the number forty seven tireman bus doesn't come all that often. So I built this funny bench that looked, I think it was, maybe I got the seating from property disposition. And I put it on wheels, and I would wheel it out to the bus stop <laughs> s- several afternoons a week. And there were sort of two seats, and I would sit at, on it. And people would come and sit next to me and wait for the bus and talk. And we, you know, so we'd sit for a long time. And over time, it was sort of my way of getting to know a certain part of the city. And uh, at some point, People started offering me recommendations for how to make the bench better. So one, we pulled it under a tree, so we got shade. Um, someone suggested we, that I have loose cigarettes available for sale, which I didn't do because <laughs> Little side I'm not a smoker pro- myself. Yeah, but a radio was a really great suggestion. Oh, yeah. So I got a radio, and then I'd ask people what station they wanted to listen to. And I remember when this song came on, there was a woman, Tina, who used to come by quite often. to t- She would take a bus down Woodward and then catch the... Um, 47 going heading west and when it came on she turned it really loud and it was so great to sit there there was like a breeze coming by and I thought this is so happy to be having this moment you know I know that um, I will find at some point that this was like a polite way for me to sort of start thinking about who I was in Detroit you know like what it meant to be like a random white guy from Ann Arbor sitting with this bench on the street in Detroit and um so I always think of this song as like a point where I just I, I had always loved the song and I had never connected it to a specific place, but it seemed appropriate at that point and, and that time. And yeah. now when you hear it, I can I tell that you're you're seeing Tina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she that, was great. That bench and the the bus. Yeah, style. yeah. And I have a picture. Another thing that had come up is someone said that someone asked me to take their picture. I said I didn't have a camera because I I didn't. Um, and someone brought me a camera, like one of those disposable box cameras from CVS, and said, "Here, you should use this and take my picture." And so I took, it was Tina who brought the camera, so I took her picture, and then everybody else who comes, you know... To also you take, know, it's, theirs? take theirs? and I'd print them out and put them in a little photo album, and people would look at them and go, look, there's me, there's my cousin. And so it was also a, a point where I think it took a couple of months where I, before I you know, got to that point, but I was really aware of tourists taking pictures of Detroit from, from the windows of buses and not getting out. You know, and the or thing, their own cars, or, or their own cars, or you know, do, you know, sort of grabbing the image of the city to sort of um, uh, describe a certain 
intrepidness or, you know, all the things that I still find objectionable about, about the imaging of Detroit, which sort of claims a certain type of grit or street credibility, but doesn't understand the full complexity of why the city looks the way that it does and how that affects people who live on it, live in it on a daily basis. And, um, you know, a lot of things like that. So did this become one of your projects or is it? The bus bench? Yes. There are a whole number of, and I think the People Mover book is part of it, sort of public transportation works. Yes. Where I recognize that one of the greatest sort of public spaces that, you know, and I think of it here in Ann Arbor, I take the number three bus a lot from the Blake Transit Center to North Campus. And it's my favorite part of my day because it's the time when I sit next to people who don't work where I work or, you know, and, and I get into conversations with people. So... I prefer to take the so bus. So you talk on the bus. Yeah, it's a short ride. Yeah, I do. I talk <laughs> so on the bus. So if you see someone talking and you're on the number yeah, three, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, on the bus, it might be Nick. Say hi. Uh, yeah, because I'm not <laughs> looking at my phone and I'm smiling as people sit down. But so, so, so the, risky, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I deleted solitaire on my phone. So I would <laughs> <laughs> That's, um, I, when I came here for school, Lorna Goodison said to the, the workshop, she said, in frustration she's like you people need to you know get out and ride the bus <laughs> oh it's great yeah it's really neat yeah and it's true. also it's free if you have an m card it's free it's yeah, an amazing it's thing we're yeah. really lucky here and if yeah. you don't or if you forget yours it's a buck 50 i just learned that yeah um, the other day yeah it's really reasonable yeah yeah complete and the the um the people mover in detroit is 75 cents 75 cents and is that still holding true since <laughs> yeah. the one piece yeah yeah i think I, I maybe when i started writing it was 50 cents but oh. it went up to 75 cents okay. yeah so yeah. let's talk about looping detroit a people mover travel on yeah yeah um oh and before i forget yeah. um thanks to terry geike at michigan publishing oh terry's for, terrific she yeah. is and yeah. for giving me a copy of the book oh that's so thank like, you terry yeah started, started it all because i've been wanting to talk with you oh, i'm so excited um, yeah <laughs> so how did this so you said, like, this project is sort of almost an outgrowth or continuum yeah, yeah. of the bus stop project. Yeah, wow. How yeah. Did it, yeah. Well, let's, you want me to, can I, should I read I a little bit? That. I'm going to read yeah. a little bit from the postscript, which might be counterintuitive, but it describes a little bit. Okay. I started riding the People Mover this way in 2005 with a group of fourth grade Detroit public school students. It was our field trip. Everyone got two tokens. I'm gonna. I, this isn't in there, but I gave everybody two tokens in case they got lost and had to get back on. Oh, but we all great. stayed together. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think most people kept the second token. At the time, downtown was seemingly empty from the elevated view we had through the train windows. We peeked at the Wurlitzer Building, the Whitney, the Book Hotel. We went around and around, then stopped at Grand Circus Park, and finding the fountain at the center dry and not working made our way to nearby Capitol Park, where the buses came in and out. Capitol Park had been the site of Michigan's first capital, with a monument to the first governor, Stevens T. Mason, to prove it. We ate our bag lunches by this man's statue, surrounded by a few party stores, check cashing places, and the backs of parking garages. So it goes on, you know, that, so I, I would see the people mover go by, and I didn't really know where it went. But when we went on it with the fourth graders, every time we would go over the back of the river, over the Detroit River, between the Cobo Center, they, all the kids would go, wee! <laughs> Every time. So we just kept going around and around and around. And it is amazing. Like, even if you're anticipating it, all of a sudden you come out of this tunnel and you're cantilevered over the river, and it's unbelievable. So It's really surprising. So that was an amazing design feature. Yeah. Amazing planning. I think it's fantastic. And it's really... But there's so many things about the people mover that are um, sort of... Troubling, too. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, 
What do you mean by that? Well, so, so there are parts of it. So I want to you know, sort of describe that I saw it first. I understood it from my you know, sort of landscape architecture and urban planning as a complete uh, boondoggle, you know, that the, the misuse or the description that um, Department of Transportation funds could be used to build a mass transit system that only served a really tiny portion of the city when it was built in the promise that it would then get to the rest of the city. So whatever they spent, $300 million, to service um, secure parking garages so that suburbanites, essentially, who are coming into the city to work could park their car in a secure parking garage, get on the people mover and go to the Renaissance Center and not have to touch the city. So whether that was explicit or not, that was part of the way that it functioned. And it still sort of functions that way. And the separation between you know, the investment above and then the streets below and the rest of the city is sort of... Because you would literally be traveling on the monorail above the city, yeah, yeah. floating sort of above it. Yeah, and you have um, no and no need to interact with it. It's always, you know, climate controlled and you would really get off and sort of wander around. And so, I, you know, I'd look at it that way and, you know, understand that there were sort of systemic problems of the ways that the rhetoric had been used to build it. But I also saw sort of poetic opportunities in it. And I had you know, read this book, you know, there were a number of authors who really sort of inspired my sort of ramblings in cities. So one is this guy, Ian Sinclair, who's a cultural geographer, he used to be a secondhand bookseller. He writes regularly in The Guardian, and his books include like London Orbital, and they are sort of lights out for the territory. They are, you know, what I describe as sort of creative nonfiction, sort of psychogeographic ramblings around London. And he's interested in textures and conversations and people, you know, more than monuments. And then along with that is this um, book called RER, or RER Express, by Francois Maspero, that looked at the line that um, tourists would ride the train from the center of Paris to the airport. And he decided instead of, um, you know, taking it that way, like most people see it, was to get off at every stop and spend a night or spend. So I initially wanted to do that with the people mover, but I didn't. You know, instead I invited other people who had spent time in and around the people mover to treat each stop as their own. So, so yeah, how did that part come? The, Nick, how did the you invitation decide part? to do the invitation? Well, I'm trying to think how I started. I remember reading this collection of stories by Michael Zardurian called The Lost Tiki Palaces of Detroit. And in it, there's one... What a great title. Oh, my God, I, I what a great his, book. his, his um, piece oh, as well in here. Oh, he's yeah. fantastic. It, he, there it's was, like a love letter to Detroit at the end of his piece. Oh, yeah, they're it's really... It's called Financial fresh. District Saturday Morning, 1966. Yeah, <laughs> it's really nice. His, he had written in that collection of short stories one, a very short story. There were two. There was one about a wig shop that you have to read that's so beautiful where people are trying to line up their reflections with the wigs in the window and they're wiggling their heads. <laughs> so it's really short. But then there's another one about riding the bus down Woodward. And it's fantastic. So I, I th- he was sort of one of the people I thought of first. And I wrote oh. to people whose work I admired, Lolita Hernandez. Yes, and, friend of the show. Uh, fantastic. And really um, the person who helped me in a lot of ways sort of welcomed me and to her home in Detroit and my students and so many so many gifts that she gave as well as being part of this. And, and her piece is so, so touching. Beautiful. With, from yeah. Greek town, but but talking about her father. Yeah. And, yeah. And then buying the suit. Yeah, yeah. And, and those the, suit shops are still there. Are they? But one just closed, and I've you know you know I see the future that is not 
you know, these beautiful three-piece cherry red suits with a matching pocket square, but some hipster craft brewery or whatever is going to come in their place. Right. Yeah. Nothing against beer. Nothing against beer. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but the bespoke suits. Yeah, the... yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I was really lucky to have people to think of who were sort of willing and interested. You know, Piper Carter, people I really admire, their writing and their you know, lifelong Detroiters as well as slightly more recent arrivals. And, so, and was that, did you do that on purpose? Oh, yeah, intentionally yeah, as well, yeah. Nick, to have a scope? Or? Yeah, yeah, because I wanted people to have sort of the complex arc of coming to something with a complete sense of sort of amazement and wonder and not quite having full information to people who had long layered histories with these places. And how did you match up that, or did you give the people a choice of which stop was there? I think I, I gave people a choice at first, and then okay. when it got to it, I was like, "These are the ones you've got left. Yeah. <laughs> Pick one." And what about the photographs? Are they all yours? Now? They're all mine. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. funny. Yeah. Well, let's take a break, and <laughs> okay. then we'll come back, and we'll talk. We'll talk more about Looping Detroit, a people mover travelogue by Nick Tobier. I'm T Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Nick Tobier is here on the program. Looping Detroit, a people mover travelogue, um, is the book that we've been talking about. A book um, that you built in collaboration with other writers and artists. Yeah. Um, 
you you took all these photographs. Um, also, a yeah. quick word about that music. Uh, we yeah. just heard Benny Goodman. Um, <laughs> and what what's this one? Well, I, I you know I've I've I wrote the People Mover a lot. You know, like, and I there's this there's a point when it's going. Like how many times, Nick? Oh, you know. Well, how many tokens or how many times around? Oh, Ooh, how many times around? Oh, easy a thousand. I, you know, once you put a token, it's hard to get off. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> There's no reason to get off because it keeps getting more interesting. Oh, yeah. I'm so interested. I should have brought you a token. Oh. Yeah. They're so neat. I had, you know, I had one in my pocket when we were in India. And every time I'd take out change, I'd see it and I'd remember it. So for luck, out like a yeah. touchstone yeah, yeah. of sorts. Yeah, it's really terrific. It's a strange little wait. But I had this, um, there's a, there are a couple of passages when the train goes through a tunnel, you know, that seems very Blade Runner. You know, that just, and I, and it sort of rumbles. And there's a, there's sort of a, dr- like a drum solo in Sing, Sing, Sing. And I had this fantasy of the train being this character rumbling through and on either side of the, platform there would be sort of a dance-off between sort of the you know contemporary um, raiders of the city and the defenders of the city and it would be a little nasty but it would be you know like a west side story kind of rumble yeah oh i love that yeah that that'll take some time organizing yeah i feel like that would be a great visual project it would be I, i would i would hope for the cooperation of the people mover marketing department which Someone did contact me when the book came out, and I'd like to, it's their thirtieth anniversary, so I'd like to try and do something, whether it's a reading on board yes, the people mover, which I, you know, with yeah. writers not getting on at each stop. I think it'd be great if they would be up for it. I would love to do oh, it. That would be wonderful. Yeah, in the spring or summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. It's windy up there. Yeah. Ooh, it's more exciting than even <laughs> that can be possible. But um, yeah, I'm so inspired to go and write it because I I can't believe that I haven't yet. I've re- rode the the monorail in Seattle, yeah. which also is. It's well. It's this one is has much more going on for it. The Detroit one, and there's one in Miami. That's the, right, the or mentioned. Jacksonville, I think. So there, there were these automated trains, you know, that are mostly understood as what we take as airport shuttles, and they were sort of pitched as public transportation. And I think there were three cities that opted for them, and Detroit was one, and Jacksonville, Florida, I think, is another. And there's one more that no longer uses it, but. I think the Jacksonville one expanded and Detroit's the only one that really sort of jumped at it and hasn't changed it. You know, so it's, it's a closed loop, which is sort of part of its, I don't know, um, sort of sweet tragedy of it. You know, like it's not expandable as it is and it doesn't really hook into other existing transit. So there are all sorts of things that are kind of wonky about it, which, you know, makes it both, you know, sort of a political football, but also sort of, um, touching and it's you know, you know like if you use it the way that I've been using it not as transportation uh, but as a way to get on and off in a short distance and wander around it can be interesting but I realize that's also a privilege to say here's a gigantic 139 square mile city that has a crappy public transit system and here's this thing that was billed as mass transit that's crappy you know, it, it it's not serving its few. function. Yeah. yeah, there's some great buses on Woodward that serve a lot more, and I think that's, you know, that's a probably in a city that's spread out. It's hard to think of like a a monorail with a lot of concrete infrastructure as you know. So at the time, it might have been misguided, and I think the you know the people mover itself has done as much possible to make it, you know, something that educational institutions use and kids can ride to go to the Fox Theater and things like that. So they're trying to you know, make do with what they have, but it is a closed loop. Right, right. And you mentioned Woodward, and 
aren't they putting in some sort it's of, like, is it a cable car? Or it's a, a light rail. A light the, rail. The Q1, okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but... So, so that will serve the same, more the same area. Of this, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> this, it's a very... I mean, it's possible to extend it, but that is the new center to downtown area, the area that's right. already currently, you know, the most well-resourced in terms of Whole Foods the and the medical center. The most arenas ar- Exactly. <laughs> so it's this, you know, the same investment in downtown with the theory that, you know, that builds investment to the rest of the city. But I'd like someday someone to say, you know what, we're going to invest in neighborhoods that have nothing to start with rather than in the places that we always do because it's always lopsided. Or immediately put spurs out to the neighborhoods yeah. to start making it That's right. easy to get where, because more of the jobs will right now be downtown. That's right. So to bring people in more easily. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you mentioned the photos. Yeah, let's talk here. about yeah. those, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't mind. Into it. When it started, and it took a while to put this together, because I think I um, I wasn't really in a hurry. I wanted people to, you know, take time to explore. But I also, I had mentioned to you, um, before we started, that I'd never described myself as a writer. Um, I, I enjoy writing a lot. Because you're an artist. I'm an, you're artist, an artist, but I write, and I enjoy writing, and I, I never saw it as like a publication deadline. So I saw it as something I was putting together, and at a certain point I had put it together, and it was sort of like a chapbook. There was, you know, like each person was assigned to a stop, and it was very neat and tidy, and they were, each chapter was the stop. Uh, but a friend of mine who teaches at um, University of Maryland, Baltimore campus, Craig Saper, who's a really interesting um, sort of literary theorist and critic who had been one of the peer reviewers for it, for it to go into the sort of publication process, suggested messing it up. You know, that one of the things that a city is good for is having sort of sound collide with one another. And that as it was, it was sort of tidy. You know, that And so the photographs serve as a way... They are in chronological order if you walk around it as a circle, but they're not keyed to a chapter necessarily. So like each stop is really about 100 to 150 yards from the next one. So it's very unclear when you're walking around which is your nearest people mover stop. And I wanted the book to have that same sort of lack of clarity that you sort of wander from one to the other and like the loop. The photographs are wandering. Because I was trying to... So I was trying to see... What I, if there was a pattern, like if I was, if when you got to, you know, the 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 Greek town one, you'd be seeing this. Yeah, and those then... things are. Yeah, they are roughly where they are, and they are, you know, like you would, f- you could, but you could also find them from another stop. So, for instance, um, this this Greek town bakery that in color, it's the Astoria Bakery, is really really tempting and. Um, you'll want to get everything there and then you'll and you'll have like a sugar coma after that. Um, but it is right. It is in Greek town, you know, so, so, but Greek town bleeds into the next, the next stop without oh, sort of, yeah, okay. yeah, double page spread there, but it's really colorful. And I the same type of, um, the sort of interstitial italic text that runs throughout that I also wrote that originally had been the introduction. And I thought it set a certain tone, but it's, uh, I decided to break it up and spread it throughout. So it's like, it's a sort of, I describe it as sort of an internal or poetic voice that runs throughout the ride. And like the photographs, links the stops together so that it is potentially, you know, one trip around, even though you're getting off and getting back on or walking. That was, that was my thinking of it. And I lost sort of the table of contents, you know, the things that would sort of help 
orient you because I had told I had asked every contributor the only provisions I had given them is that it it can be anything except something that you might find in like say a lonely planet guide to the city you know or photos or something so it should it should be um exploratory but not uh imminently useful maybe in the same <laughs> right. way right? and so cuz the cuz then so what what this book is up to is not being some sort of guide, but maybe an invitation, yeah. an opening yeah, yeah. into. Yeah, an opening not only to ride the people mover, but to, you know, take any square block and see it that way. You know, to say, if, if you're going to walk around where you live, whether you go to Detroit or Bangalore or stay in Ann Arbor, could you have the same experience of being open to that place as you do, you know, as a tourist or as an explorer, or, you know, and you would be willing to investigate at a, both a micro and macro level. So this connects to the work that I'm getting. Like I looked, I looked at your, your everyday uh, places. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank um, you. Thank you for doing all of these, these, um, like the, the public works that Thanks you so do much. out in yeah. the world. Cause it seems like part of the mission is that you're doing, um, making interruptions, like offering interruptions, I yeah, think was yeah. the language used. Yes. And, yeah. and I love the idea of offering an interruption because it seems like it'll, it will force, it will lead you or it will like shake you up. So you see something in a new way, whether it's your own space or. Sure. Yeah. Is that. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair? I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of the, I think if I, you know, if there's anything I bring to the world as an artist, it's that that was a really great way for me to discover a way to navigate a place that I felt powerless in, is to, you know, find my own place in the details that mattered to me and to, you know, to enjoy that and to relish it and to look for it. And that's, you know, so, you know, I always think that any time you can share a point of view, whether someone agrees with it or not, is a wonderful opportunity to say, this is how I see the world and I'd like to show it to you this way. And maybe, you know, for this time, you'll come along with me and maybe it'll affect the way you think. Maybe not. But that's that's OK. I like when people will take a stance. Well, and the origin story, it seems like there was um, the elephant, the elephant. Yeah. Do, do yeah. Wanna... Yeah. That's really funny, actually, coming f- now, having just been, been in, in India, India. <laughs> where elephants are different. You know, they they exist. They they're were there. around. They they're were on around. the streets. Yeah. Where we were, there were a lot of cows on the street, cows and oxen and our son got to ride an elephant who was in this village for a temple festival. So it Lucky. represented something, you know, as part of a regular ritual. And in a sense, the elephant that I saw was as well. And I can, my wife has heard it so many times. She'll want to cover her ears if she's <laughs> listening. But I was, um, I was working at the Fulton Fish Market in New York, which probably describe a lot about my social life at the time, which is that I came home, you know, I worked at night and I smelled like fish when I came back and I was walking up um, First Avenue, and it was, you know, 2 a.m. or something, and I saw an elephant walking across the street. And I, you know, for a second I stopped, and I thought, oh, crap, you know, and I have to stop because there's this elephant, you know, in the way. <laughs> you, were, you were upset. I was, I was on elephant. my way. I, you know, I was, going, I was wait, aiming for the bus, for the Crosstown bus, and then I thought, oh, my God, there's an elephant walking down the street. And that is so much more interesting than anything I've ever done as an artist. And the street is so... And so what I didn't know at the time was that it was, a at that point, up until... This is your really an annual event where Ringling Brothers would park their trailers on the Queen side because they were too big to make it through the tunnels, and they would walk the animals through to Madison Square Garden. So just a year or so ago, they got rid of the elephants, and now they're closing as a circus. But it was a procession that, if you wanted to, you could come out and watch it. But 
it was just happening. So I thought, this is the most amazing time to be at this street corner. <laughs> and then not, you know, as I, you know, continued to think about my role as an artist and a landscape architect, designer, I thought there's no such thing as an inherently uninteresting place. It's only our abilities to invest our imaginations and our sense of looking in that place. And so I think of, you know, when my work works well for me, I'm coming at it with that sort of full vigor of, I'm going to figure out what's interesting here and coax it or, you know, like respond to it in some way. But anything that I add to it is pretty marginal. It's really just, uh, you know, uh, funneling attention to what's happening there. So like making a bench and bringing it out to the bus sure, stop that that's already right. exists. That's right. And there are people already waiting there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back today on Living Writers. So Nick yeah. Tobier is here. Um, his book, Looping Detroit, A People Mover Travelogue. We'll be right back. No more rainy days. The sun will chase the clouds away. Good life. 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 No more rainy days, the sun will chase the clouds away. Good life, good life, good life, good life, good life, good life, in the good life, good life. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Nick Tobier is here um, picking the dirt bombs to play at the break. Thank <laughs> I you. I love the dirt bombs. <laughs> <laughs> that could also be something like, um, like that could be a theme song from for the People Mover. Yeah, yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. And so, wow. And why did you call it like the? How long did it take you to come up with the title, Looping Detroit, a People Mover Travel Log? I called it something else for a little. A working title was called like a Small Train for a Big City. And I think I had, at that point, been titling a lot of things like that. Like I had a project in a waiting pool in Toronto that I called S Small Cascade for a Large City. And oh, I, was like, oh. I was like, oh, no, I'm falling into some kind of trope. <laughs> <or that." laughs> You're in a loop. Oh. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed like riding it, the loop was really, you know, like after the first time around, I thought, oh, I've done this before. But then, like any good loop, if you listen to it, you start to see new rhythms in it. So, you know, if you ride it 10 times, you start to see things you didn't notice the first three times. So I think it's, you know, one sense of loop is endless. But in that, you sort of free yourself up to look closely at different spots. And that's why you've looped thousand, a thousand times. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Nick, we also have on the table Utopia Toolbox uh, Point One for working on the future yeah. and incitement to radical creativity. It's a big book. Yeah. It's a, it's, I know. It's a great it's a, big book. Yeah, yeah, and it's meant to get dirty. So and you're supposed to sort of use it more like a toolbox than a book so, so you can pick it up. And So it's, I, it's something that I worked on with a, a friend of mine who came here 
to interview for a job that she didn't get, and I'm so happy she didn't get it, so that she didn't that we could be friends in a different way and rather than colleagues. But Juliana Stiegley, and she's oh. um, in Augsburg in Germany, and she had been working on it. She had been working on a version of it in German that came out a couple of years ago, and I she interviewed me. We had a long talk, not unlike this, um, about this work that I've been at that point running a with some friends of mine on the east side in Detroit, a mobile produce business, and we talk about that in here. And then we decided we would try to put together an English-language version of it. And the short is it that there are a series of interviews and profiles and artist projects and prompts that are meant to be used to sort of, uh, I don't know, jumpstart sounds too, uh, too corporate. Um, mm. the, for instance, there's, the couple of, there's a page in there that I love that says, tomorrow at 10 a.m., the gravity switch will be turned off. Please plan accordingly. And so some of these are sort of exercises to make you think. And then there are interviews in there. Um, there's a project by a group called um, Atelier for for small for Simple Tasks. I think that's the way that they translate into English. But they organized a summit meeting of the nine mayors of the smallest towns in Switzerland atop the smallest mountain in Switzerland <laughs> at the same time that the G8 was meeting to talk about small things. And the intro, isn't brilliant. that beautiful? Yeah. So there are projects in there that make me think there are different ways of looking at the world. And part of the utopia that we imagine is also dystopic. You know, that the ability to talk through dissonance is one of the things that we're really interested in. And so in the intro, I write about this sort of accidental co-housing community in Davis, California, in which in the two neighbors decided to take down their fence that separated their houses <laughs> because they wanted to share, you know, I guess they had kids that played together. They wanted to share lawnmower and it grew and grew like that. And there's so many things. So do you mean more people took down their fences? More people took down their fences and wanted to live that way. And so when we, my wife, Rebecca and I moved to Ann Arbor, the street that we chose to live on Murray Avenue, which we love. Um, is a street quite like that. It's sort of like that. I mean, one of the things we noticed is that everybody was sitting on their front porches when we came to look for at our house because the um, backyards are really small. And because people sit on their porches, you get to know your neighbors and there's active street life. And so I feel really lucky to live on that street. And Utopia Toolbox, in some ways, suggests that there are sort of ways that you, in whichever way that you exist, that you could interact with people to create your own sort of an utopia, knowing that it's fleeting, like we were talking about before in terms of the sort of static and fragile places, that an ideal is only ideal until you until it isn't any longer. You know, so it's not a... You don't reach a utopia and stay there, but the proposition is that it's a, a process of sort of continual creative inquiry that is not without friction. It reminds me of um, one of my favorite Grace Lee Boggs quotes. Oh, I love it, yeah. Uh, Don't get stuck in old ideas. Ah, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Because it wasn't, yeah. it's that's so right. That, so being fleeting, like that's part of also the letting go of something. Yeah. Like making it, letting it go, or letting it be. Yeah. Because then yeah. that will transform. That's right. Yeah. 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 And recognizing in that that there is, you know, nostalgia and sadness and anger and also a possibility that comes with it. So I think that's, you know, as I, um, think about Detroit, which I'm really, uh, you know, there's, to say I'm concerned sounds too um, patriarchal. You know, I'm but, trying right, to figure, right, you know, right. that uh, there are um, really vulnerable communities that are being displaced. For example, yeah. um, if, if there's another bridge. That's right. Yeah. A whole community is, is going to. In Delray. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's an interest. That itself is a in really interesting neighborhood to visit, and there are all sorts of things there that, in terms of environmental degradation that's been happening for generations with Zug Island and you know the refineries along there. Um, and I know people who live in Delray who are looking forward to the new bridge because they believe that their properties will be purchased for a sum of money that's beyond the current value of their house. Oh, I see. But I don't think things go that way. I don't think, you know, like uh, small landowners often profit from eminent domain. So that's, you know, that's where I want to raise um, questions. And and then a community is gone, too. Oh, yeah, that sure. It... The social fabric that exists there, you know, and... Yeah, there's there's an old Hungarian bar that's no longer called Kovacs that I guess when I first started sort of wandering around Delray's would serve this kind of sausage and sauerkraut lunch until the um, Zug Island wouldn't let the shift workers leave work for lunch because they would, you know, come back late or maybe they had a beer or something. And so they lost their clientele because Delray is just too depopulated to support it. But I feel lucky that I got to have lunch there once. <laughs> so and so even that is like there's there's that's a fleeting maybe utopia that I, I mean I guess I don't want to try to I feel like now I'm trying to make romanticize it exactly, in a way, yeah, and I yeah. I don't mean to do that. No, no, I think all. yeah, I think part and parcel with it is that we're lucky to have you and I are lucky to have this time to talk together right now. But we're gonna have to leave because the next show is coming. Yeah, out. we've yeah. got the sports. But that's sports what that's what makes house. it precious. That's what makes yeah. it really important because and and I you know I think um, when we're doing well at life, we recognize each moment as potentially important rather than take it for granted. And I think with Detroit, it's I think like the like you've lived here now a long time, yeah. and now I have too, Nick. I never yeah. expected to live in Ann Arbor. How and long I, have you been here? Um, since I guess I moved here in August two thousand five. So oh, so just a while. couple years after us. Um, yeah, but I don't know. There's something about like the like Michigan definitely grows on you. I find whether it's yeah. the UP like yeah, going up I, yeah. to you know Lake Superior is indeed a superior like it's beautiful yeah <laughs> and Detroit I feel like even though I know I have such a limited knowledge I feel protective of it for and the people like just who are there oh yeah oh, yeah. yeah yeah no I'm I'm really uh, alert to corporations that use the image of Detroit for their own profit and and so many things that I find sort of reprehensible and you know as a creative practitioner I want to make you know, be as attentive as possible to recognizing that in some ways it's not my place to give the image, you know, to share the image. I can share my imp impressions. And that was yes. one reason why it was really critical for me to have as many... Voices in the book Yeah, itself. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because so, I didn't want it to be my, my voice. I wanted to, you know, um, have it be somewhat of a collected voice, but not collective. I think so. that's so wise and just Thanks. right, Nick. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and we have, uh, we have, let's see, I feel like you're going to have to come back oh, that'd be ag great. again, yeah. if that, if that's Oh yeah. Right. This, this little book collected lots is about a flea market in Southwest Detroit, which if you haven't visited, you go on a, s I think they're open Sundays too in the summer, Saturdays and Sundays. It's a great mix. It's, you know, it's run by some, like a, this Palestinian guy named Sam. It's a lot of Mexican and Ecuadorian vendors. I um, went once just after Easter, and there was this funny stand that said, um, "Knives, ten dollars, free bunny." So this guy was selling from the from the thumb was trying to sell these bunnies that no one had bought for Easter. Oh, and I no. said, "What do people do with the bunnies?" And he went, 
you know, yeah. right? <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> but it's a, it's an amazing active lot filled with stuff that people don't want and people making juice. It's really like one of the most incredible places I could and think so to visit. You, so then, and so in a way, cause this too will be fleeting. Like hopefully the flea market is still going on yeah. in the weekends. Yeah. But you've captured in this book like this moment like to so that you can think about it and, yeah. and think about the possibilities of um of buying stuff or not buying stuff just yeah and bunnies and bunnies <laughs> we're gonna be there <laughs> i have a great picture of the bunny man i'll send you oh i would love that <laughs> and again this one has lots of photographs as yeah. well yeah so is yeah. It, are, is photography the image is it key to to most of your projects it, right now you know Nick, it's or? become I th- it's a um I think in a in an Instagram world, ah. you know, a, uh, an image that's descriptive or evocative without being illustrative is really important. I notice you don't use captions. No, yeah, 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 because I don't want to explain them. But I think that's I think that's that sort of describes it. If I can describe it in one image that's not, you know, like a, I don't know, like a, my photo of the Eiffel Tower because there are already zillions of them out right. there. But there's something that. A story, something it's evocative, indicative the of a detail or a way of looking. I think, yeah. Well, thanks for talking today. Thanks about so much your for ideas. having me. It was so great to be I here. Get, come back anytime. Oh, I'd love to. Thank <laughs> um, you. Thanks so, for the songs, the oh, Liz. Oh, yeah. oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to everyone out there for listening. Um, many, many thanks again to uh, everyone who called in for our fundraiser, for Living Writers, and for all the shows, and for supporting um, the radio station. Um, uh, and. Thank you, Nick Tobier, uh, for talking with me today. Um, thanks, I'm, T, and thanks, thanks, May's Books for oh, making yes. this happen. Is May's it? Books, yeah. Michigan Publishing. Yeah. Um, okay, well, until next time.
across the timeline. Gets a screen for field foul. Gives it back out to Dawkins. Back to Walton. Open three from the left wing. He got it. Derek Walton ties the game. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host, Andrew, and we got Cody Bogart and Austin on the other side. We're going to kick things off with a little bit of Michigan basketball, then go into Michigan football. We begin to NBA trade line discussion. But first off, a must-win game for this Michigan basketball team on the road at Rutgers. Shouldn't be too much of a test, but this is one that if they drop, they're in serious trouble. They probably fall out of tournament contention for now, or at least off of the bubble for now. But Michigan does have a pretty good chance to get this one home, stay exactly where they are in about the 10-11 seed.